Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you from Reminderville, Ohio. And yes, Ray, that is a real town. You know, Bob, you keep Using these names, I I need to start checking them out because they just don't sound real. Well, you know, they show up on Google. Google has everything. If Google says it, it's the truth. That's right. If Google says it, then we can take that one, maybe not to the bank, but at least down the road. So nonetheless, we're coming to you from Reminderville, Ohio. And that reminds me, wasn't that a great segue, Bear? Great. Boy, I'd make those How transitions. How long did you work on that? I had to think about that one for a long time. But I did uh, need to remind myself that in last session, we talked about mindful practices. And one of the mindful practices was setting up and structuring. And there was a book I wanted to reference that I feel may well be the very best book I have ever seen in terms of providing real attentive detail to the concept of setting up meetings. And the book's title is The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. And when I was introduced to it, I thought, okay, we do this for a living. doesn't have much to say to us. And boy, was I wrong. And so this is a real plug for this book because I think if you want to be a facilitator, this would be a valuable book that probably addresses far more extensively than anything we could do in a podcast, this notion of setting a meeting up properly. We thought we'd take time today to finish up the conversation about particular facilitation skills. And that is those skills that really do more than anything else, facilitate a conversation. And if we can get to it, and we hope to, is to also wrap up this particular episode with some of the obstacles you're going to encounter when you attempt to facilitate and when you decide you're going to be engaged in the facilitation process. So Bear, we talked about listening last week as a key skill. We got into pretty detailed behaviors around the concept of listening, active listening, intentional listening. But how about some other skills that you identify with facilitation? Well, one that we've talked about before is the idea of synthesizing ideas, integrating, putting ideas together. But that involves you on occasion when you're trying to integrate what's being said, when you're trying to synthesize it, it requires summary. Mm -hmm. It requires taking all the contributions and trying to tie them together, see where they mesh, see where they touch each other, and then combining people's thoughts. I mean, some people are going to insert an idea, another person, different one, and make an effort to combine that. When you're doing those things as a part of your goal of synthesizing, bringing the information together so people see it in a larger whole. What happens is when we synthesize, we at least attempt to make things easier for the people to hang on to, easier for them to grab a hold of and keep with them. So yeah, I like that idea of synthesizing. Go ahead, jump in. Let me, let me push back a bit. When you summarize, do you believe that your effort is to summarize virtually all that was said, or can you randomly leave things out? I think I attempt to summarize what I see to be the essential point being made. Oftentimes, people will take four or five minutes to make a single point that can be stated in a pretty succinct way. And so if I'm summarizing, I don't attempt to capture it all, but I do attempt to make sure I attribute it to the people who have identified specific things and that I'm carrying the conversation. I think one of the other advantages of summarizing at least acknowledges individuals' contributions. 
that as the conversation is unfolding, when I summarize, what I'm saying to the people in the room is I'm acknowledging their individual contribution to the whole of the conversation. And when I synthesize, I'm beginning to bring those contributions together. I'm actually beginning to say, I see their connections here. I see their relationships between what we're saying and where we want to get to. And so I'm actually taking, in my mind, a step further. Now, how do you react there? What was your thinking when you thought about that and you asked that question? Well, I think it's absolutely critical. And I think that what you could experience as a group is if someone doesn't hear their idea included in the integration, included in the combined thought, they may have a reaction that you as a facilitator need to be open and honest to address. And that is, you know, it looks like you're reacting to my way of combining the thoughts. Mm-hmm. Did I miss something here? I think I have to be at least alert to that kind of reaction so people don't feel like they were intentionally ignored or intentionally dismissed, but rather it was your way of saying, here are the things I think fit, here are the things I think fit together into a picture that all of us have had some consensus on. What I'm hearing there, and I'm trying to put pieces together over several of the episodes we've been having on facilitation, that connects me up with the mindful practice of checking in in a very specific case. What I'm doing is checking in with that individual when I'm seeing their reaction to say, it doesn't sound like you feel that I've captured your idea in my attempt to kind of bring all these ideas together. So I like that. We're we're beginning to play off the multiple things that are going on in facilitation that we have to constantly be aware of. Another skill that I think you've identified before, but uh, needs additional comment is the idea of encouraging participation. That's a skill. A lot of people facilitate, they don't get people engaged. They don't get people committed to the process. They find too few people participating. What are the ways you see that skill being exercised, Bob? How do you get people engaged? I'd go back to our last episode and say, I've really bought into the concept of getting voices in the room. And so it's rare that I will attempt to facilitate something without having as much conversation at the beginning as I can get, whether it's in small groups, at roundtables, whether it's the whole group talking. I would say I really work at within the first five minutes, getting people talking to me. That helps in two ways. One is it actually does give voices in the room, but it also tells me the people who are going to be less inclined to speak. And so What ends up happening is I now am cued into them individually, and I'm probably going to call them by name and say, what's your reaction to this? How are you hearing this? What's your first thoughts on this? It gives me that way of pulling those individuals in. So I think encouraging participation, we start by creating an environment in which you set things up, structure it so that you do get early on participation. And then the second thing you do is work with individuals who are hesitant to participate by pulling them in and in a way, giving them gentle nudges or gentle questions that they can respond to and not feel like they're being put on the spot. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I guess my view of it would be if I were watching someone facilitate, I could tell just by counting the number of people who actually do make a contribution. They're not counting, but actually identifying what percentage of people are actually contributing. And then to what degree people continue to participate. Mm. Beyond answering a question, do they then jump in and take the initiative on their own kind of thing? Mm -hmm. That would be a good gauge. I think one of the behaviors or skills that we identified was actually probing participants. I think that also speaks to this question of how do you get people involved? How do you get them engaged? How do you encourage participation? Once we get someone responding, then to follow up with that. Now you're laughing or smiling. What are you laughing about? Well, I I was responding medically to the word probe. (laughs) Maybe that's a more difficult skill than I imagined or thought, or maybe it creates a greater degree of discomfort than I thought. But uh, the way you described it, 
eased my concern. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Because I have to confess, I think good facilitators do probe. They don't let the first statement go unreflected upon. Maybe that's the thing I'm thinking about is oftentimes you'll put a question out there, someone will answer it, and it really needs more elaboration. It needs more detail. It needs more of that person's thinking in it. And so my view of probing says, I'll follow up on that. So the probe really is another word we could use is exploring. Yes. In probing, you're really exploring. You're opening things up. You're looking for the breadth of things that people might be willing or open to saying. You know, and you use a phrase really meaningful and helpful in this space. And that is, let me wonder with you. Well, I would just like to kind of wonder a bit more about what you're saying there. And so that really suggests exploration versus I'm going to put you on the spot or I'm challenging you or I disagree with you. Let's just wonder out loud. Now, it may be that we are disagreeing and that's why we want to wonder out loud, but the way we state it encourages this exploration. And that is key of what's going on in facilitation is we're promoting people to explore ideas, to really open up on their thinking. Other skills. One of the skills I think is often overlooked initially, we've referred to this before, and that is creating some boundaries, creating some commonly held rules so that people know that the conversation actually has form. What are some of the boundaries that you have consistently had to create or some of the ground rules? I mean, even if they're fun, what are some examples of ground rules you will lay out at meetings you're facilitating or boundaries you want to establish? What what do you get confronted with these days? Well, I tend to think in terms of volume, Hmm. no shouting. (laughs) <laughs> no ranting. You're working with a different crowd than I am. Yeah, let's keep let's keep our voices kind of indoor voices rather than outdoor, outdoor voices. voices. I mean, that kind of thing. To say that we want it to be mannerly, uh, conversation that people can handle without feeling like they're being roughed up. Hmm. I don't want conversation that becomes abusive, become assaultive, which is not the same as a, it can be confrontational. You and I use the word often, I want to push back a bit rather than I want to slap you, insert this here. So that would be one of my rules. I think one of the boundaries that I've bumped into in the last couple of years that is more consistently out there and has to be addressed is technology and people bringing technology in the room. Absolutely. Phones, iPads, computers. It comes with the territory now. People walk in with their laptops. And yet I have found repeatedly, in fact, I was at one conference where the person right in front of me who had their two to three hour session didn't address the issue at all. And every person in the room was on their laptop. Now, the facilitator could have presumed they were taking notes. I happened to be sitting in the back of the room watching. Now, this is with a group of school principals in a major public school system. Everybody in the room is a principal. I'm sitting in the back, and the person right in front of me is shopping on Amazon. (laughs) I am thinking to myself, boy, brother, are you going to be facing it when I step up the next hour and talk about this? And so that's what I did the very first Ground rule I laid out is there'll be no laptops open. And they'll all complain and say, well, how do we take notes? I said, we'll get you the notes. And then I tell the uh, Albert Einstein story of I only want you to get one or two good ideas from these next two hours anyway. And so I'm not worried about you taking notes. In order for us to have the conversation we want, you need to be really focused, particularly you who have been shopping on Amazon the previous two hours. (laughs) (laughs) All that's just a fun story to say, I think setting boundaries around technology in the room and the use of technology is a key one these days. A lot of people just choose to pass on it and say, I'm not comfortable addressing it, particularly not with a group of administrators or a group of executives or a group of educators. So yeah, that's one of the boundaries that I find. I also think setting out ground rules 
Now, this is back to the notion of humor and pace and modulation. I think setting out ground rules, that's a good place to insert a little bit of fun, to insert some examples that have some humor attached to it, but make the point. And so I see really ground rules as something that's almost without question has to be done in every session. Most groups I've been in, those haven't been clear and often they've been overlooked. Mm -hmm. I think what you're saying is perfect. So you're setting the room upright. You've got to also be setting the group upright so they can be present, so they can be uh, reflecting properly and that their attention is where it needs to be focused, that kind of thing. Exactly. Now, one of the skills that we identified was being ready and able to intervene. What's your thinking on that? Well, first, I think you have to be able to diagnose whether intervening is necessary. Mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes you can step in because it sounds like it's going to escalate and you're a little bit concerned about that getting away from you. And that may be a little bit too early. There are times that you need to let it take its course for a limited period. Now, for me, the moment it becomes combative, I will probably step in and say, you know, in light of our ground rules, the goal is not to debate. The goal is not to be confrontational in a personal sense. It was to be confrontational around an idea. And I think we're at a place now where this has gotten a little bit more combative than you intended it to get. So I would think would be helpful to do this. I'd like to ask each of you a question. Then I'll be thinking through what kind of questions could I ask that would begin to de-escalate some of that energy that may be taking place. So the first for me is being able to diagnose when an intervention is necessary. And then for me, the intervention would need to be not personal. Somehow I need to be able to step in in a way doesn't cause any party to feel like they've been put at a disadvantage, that they've been called out in a negative way. You know, when you say that, one of the things I think about is that in meetings that I've been in and when I watch meetings, sometimes there are people that need to be protected a little bit more than others. So when you talk about this notion of confrontation and we have to make the judgment, when is the time to intervene? And as you've said, when things become combative, that's a trigger point for you. The other one I see is an intervention that's slightly milder than that, but is when I see somebody's idea being consistently attacked, or you begin to have this notion that the attack is really more about the person than it is about the idea, then I think to intervene and say, let's just back up a minute. Let's talk about the idea. And so what I'm doing is I'm intercepting or intervening and saying, I'm not going to let these conversations become personality or personal driven. We really do want to stay focused on the idea and that intervention of being a little protective of those that come under attack. Now, what's interesting is one of the other skills that we talk about is the ability to maintain impartiality. So even as I raise this, I think I've also got to be seen as not favoring some individual over another or one individual over another or one idea over another. I have to really, as a facilitator, be truly impartial. So I think that's a bit of a balancing act there, that notion of intervention, when and where, how do we intervene? And then the notion of saying at the same time, I have to be perceived as impartial. Did you want to jump in there? You're kind of nodding. I was only going to say that I always feel intervention is necessary when... Things feel like they're reaching an edge related to control. And mm. I don't need to be in control, but I need to make sure things don't get out of control. Okay. And so it's uh, anytime I'm thinking this is reaching a point at which I feel control could be lost or control could become suspect that I'm going to step in and intervene. Now, like you said, there are lots of different methods to do that. But if I'm just watching to say, when might I need to do that? So whenever I feel like control is becoming an issue here where either someone's being too dominant or people are becoming too adversarial or they're, they're becoming advocates in a way that is very overwhelming. Those are times I begin to get uneasy 
with where things are moving. Yeah. So that would cause me to intervene. Great observation. In fact, those are very helpful examples to me in terms of moments in time when we do intervene. I think one last skill I would like to address is time management. And I just want to put it out there and say, it's one of the obligations of a facilitator is to manage the time. Now, I have to confess, I'm terrible at it. I tend to take the ebb and flow of the group as a way of managing time. I've seen other facilitators, boy, on the money. We got five minutes to do this. We're going to have 15 minutes to do this. And they are on the clock. And I'm not sure where the right balance is. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. But it's clear that managing the time that you've been given is a part of facilitation. And you have to do it wisely. Yeah, I'm uh, with you. If I have a lean, if I'm leaning toward anything, I'm leaning toward watching the clock. I'm leaning toward, we promised we'd meet for an hour. We understood that we needed to accomplish this much and we're not there. Hmm. And at the end of that, I'll feel responsible and think of us as being unsuccessful if we haven't managed that time well. If we haven't within the time allotted, addressed and produced something that all feel is good for that time used. So I lean on the heavy side. I don't let it become kind of a free-floating conversation at the end. If it was just good conversation, well, then we it turned out okay. My answer is no, it didn't. Hmm. We had something to accomplish. We had time in which to do it. Now, I don't do it in minute by minute, but if I can see the time is getting away from us, I'll bring that to our attention and say, okay, let's I'll move in this direction and see if we can get some motion that'll make us more productive in terms of the outcome we wanted. You know, and what that triggers in me is the notion that really having an understanding of your goals and what this meeting is supposed to accomplish and saying, yes, we have not done our jobs if we didn't get there in the time we've been given. And in a way, that's also a part of our responsibilities when we're setting something up. That if someone says they want to accomplish all of this and we're going to give you an hour to do it, for the facilitator to say, can't get that done in an hour. And so for us to have a sense of that connection between the amount of time we have and the actual goals and purposes we have for the meeting, and I'm with you, it goes way back to that early model of communication that says in every message, there's three elements, a task, relationship, and identity. And what we're trying to do as a facilitator is manage all three of those, not to the sacrifice of one or two of them. So to say, well, I don't care if the job doesn't get done, if we don't get to our outcomes, as long as we all had a good time, as long as we all liked one another, or as long as we all felt good about ourselves. No, we do want all three. And so that task has to get done. So I'm with you there. Well, believe it or not, Bear, we are pushed beyond time again. So I think we're going to have to stop here. Maybe what we'll do with the next episode is we'll wrap things up. We'll summarize everything we thought about in terms of facilitation. And we'll talk a few of the obstacles that we've seen happen when people try to facilitate meetings. That would be great. I think that we have covered an awful lot of ground uh, in this area of facilitation, but it does need to be summarized in a way that we feel like we've captured all the important stuff. And you know we are going to do it. If anybody, if anybody can summarize, we can do it. That's what we're about, man. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or a situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger more complex, or more dangerous than it already is, almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast.